0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In my feed this morning was this picture from Ohio from two years ago. It was taken by a guy named Chris Arnade, who wrote a book last year called Dignity, in which he's a, an investment banker that left his work and went to the down-and-out, depressed areas of this country and got to know people in most vulnerable situations. And this is one of the pictures that he took. This is a family that lives in Portsmouth, Ohio, and that's their house. The grocery basket. Their mother is out of frame. They're, she's at a drive through at a McDonald's. She's asking for money, and she's hooked on opioids. And the woman who wrote an article about this picture that I read this morning, couldn't get the picture out of her mind, and that's why she wrote about it. She even went to Portsmouth, Ohio, and the family was still there, and they were still living out of a grocery basket, and they were still mostly feeding their kids Mountain Dew. And she had to go to them and say, you, you, can't, you can't feed them Mountain Dew, all, you're going to dehydrate them. And so she gets some water, and she didn't know what else to do. But that's as the article that she wrote called, This is a Picture of the Opioid Crisis, just from a different angle. I put this picture before myself, and I picked this picture before you, because for the next 12 months, you and I are going to be bombarded with people seeking power, making promises about how to make this nation better. And one big plank in whatever platform they represent will be promises about what we should do with those who are the most vulnerable among us. I think it was Gandhi who said the mark of a people is how they treat their most vulnerable. I think that speaks to our condition. And so the picture before you is a tragedy. The picture before you is a social problem. The picture before you is a political problem, and therefore it is a very modern problem but I would like to argue to you that it is also a theological problem or a theological question. Because you can't just say that vulnerable people exist, and you can't just say we need to help vulnerable people. You need to ask the question, who are they and why should we help? And that requires something greater than a mere political promise. And you know who would agree with that argument? Isaiah would. Isaiah would say this is a social, a political, so to speak, problem, but it's also a theological problem, and therefore it is not only modern, it is ancient. And he wants to speak to that question today in the 10 verses we're going to read from Isaiah 58. And ironically enough, and I think I can say this with both eyes open, that the path he takes through this issue is the same path in the same debate that you're going to hear for the next 12 months. Because a lot of issues come down to this. What part does those with religious devotion have on the question of attending to the vulnerable? Some will say those with religious devotion are part of the problem. Others will say those with religious devotion are part of the solution. Regardless if you think it's the problem or the solution, attending to the vulnerable will always come down to the motivation behind it. And so we're going to listen to Isaiah speak to those three possibilities, that religious devotion could be the problem, that it could be the solution, but that it always comes down to a motivation. So if you're able to stand, we're in Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, starting in verse 1. Cry loud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, you take no knowledge of it? Behold, In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a a day for a person merely to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall crawl and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Some in our day, some whose names and faces you can see right now, will say that religious devotion is part of the problem, whether it means attending to the vulnerable or anything else of social concern. They will say, will you please look at the history of the way sectarianism has plagued the church for decades, centuries, millennia. Will you look at that? Will you consider the myriad examples of corruption that has plagued the church for so long? And most of all, would you please stare and reckon with the fact of this huge disconnect between all of these professions of certain ideas and the practices that hide the true belief? Will you see the abuse? Will you see the oppression? Will you see the violence? Will you see all of that? That religious devotion, they will say, is a necrosis. And what do you do with necrotic flesh? You excise it so that we can get on with healing and moving on into something that looks like life again. They will say religious devotion is part of Of the problem. And you know what Isaiah might say? I agree in a sense. In the very first verse of the passage. He says. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions. To the house of Jacob their sins. He's calling them out for their sin. What's the sin? The sin boils down. To an appearance of godliness. That that seems very demonstrable, that seems very real and very indicative of something true, and yet it hides something. It hides a disconnect. All of this language of, of seeking the Lord, of delighting in his presence, of asking for righteous judgments, all of those things you would expect people with religious devotion to say and say over and over again. And yet Isaiah is arguing that all of that is a show. It is a farce. Hashtag fake religion. Why? How so? On what basis does he make that rather unequivocal accusation? Two things. Two things that they have fallen into. Two things that you and I, as those who proclaim religious devotion, will always be tempted to fall into. The first one is this presumption that borders on manipulation. Presumption that borders on manipulation. Where do I get that? What is Israel doing here? What's the first word we hear from Israel itself? We hear a complaint we hear Israel complaining, saying, you know what? We're putting a lot of ourselves into this pious demonstration of religious devotion, and we're not getting anything out of it. And, and you hear from Israel in verse 3 something like a complaint, or, or what really amounts to something like an ancient quid pro quo. You hear it in verse 3. Why have we fasted? You see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? We're following the instruction manual. We're forgetting ourselves. We're abasing ourselves. We're, we're going hungry. We're actually skipping meals. And nothing. Silence. Nada. Now look, fasting. Okay, in that day, it was not primarily about your gut health. It was not about improving... Uh, a probiotic bacteria in your stomach. It was a religious act. It was the choice to deny yourself, to deny the attention that you gave to the normal things like eating, and instead forsaking that so that you could focus your attention in a different way, focusing it towards the Lord's presence that you might seek out consolation or comfort or, or insight or even conviction. And there are several examples whether individually or as kings of Israel, calling for a fast. There is only one mandate to fast, though, in the entire Old Testament. It comes in the law, and Israel was commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. Abase yourself that you might consider his forgiveness through his own sacrifice, through his own system. That was the day that you would fast. We don't know why Israel is fasting here. Isaiah is not doing journalism in this moment in the dry, dusty, overwrought, overpacked city of Jerusalem today. It's not that. He's doing cultural analysis. You guys are giving yourself to all forms of abasement, and you're looking at the ritual, and you're getting no return. That's how Israel's thinking of it. And Isaiah's saying, you know what that is, right? That's presumption on God. That's almost like manipulation. Like you're turning God into a cosmic concierge. Look what we did. Look what we're doing. Why nothing in return? And as much as we might look down at Israel and go, I can't believe they're doing that. Maybe we're not conscious of it, but sometimes we'll, maybe we'll give ourselves to certain religious practices and think, right, ready, show me the money. Show me the blessing. We make these little bargains that maybe we don't admit to ourselves in the midst of it, but it's a presumption that's almost like manipulation. I mean, imagine saying to a friend of yours, you know what? I promise to show you the respect and dignity that you deserve if you'll just give me 50 bucks. Sorry, what? But, but that's the equivalent of kind of how Israel's whole view of the Lord and of what this religious devotion is all about. If, you know, if you'll just do this, this quid pro quo, man. And, and that's not even the biggest thing that Isaiah is upset about here or that the Lord is upset about and calling out for sin. That, that's kind of upstream. It's what's downstream that's the worst stuff. And it's the second thing that they're being accused of that you and I are always tempted for, and it's this. What has set in to this people as a society is a greater preference for consumption over compassion. They have come to value consumption over compassion. And you hear that explicitly put in verses 3 and 4. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and depress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Again, it's, it's, when you read Isaiah, a lot of times it's hard to reconstruct the backstory there. Don't know what's going on. He doesn't specify. All we know is that whatever is going on, Israel, in their show of religiosity, and, and fasting kind of speaks for, like a sort of a stand-in for a whole version of spirituality. Whatever they're doing, they're still engaged in some kind of self-indulgence that's to their own advantage. But at the same time, it happens to be to others' disadvantage. They're kind of living high on the hog in a certain way, but they're leaving nothing behind for anybody that can't do that. And that... On its face is a violation both of the law and of love at the same time. In the law, it's explicit. If you own land and you bring in a harvest, do not glean all the way to the edges. Bring in the harvest. Bring in the bounty. Leave some back there for those that don't have have two drachma to rub together to gather up what is the bounty of your place. Don't glean to the edges. But Israel has forgotten that. And they've forgotten others who are in a vulnerable place. And then the odd thing is, not only have they forgotten the law and forgotten others, they've actually forgotten themselves. Because apparently, in the course of their fasting, what happens when you skip a couple meals, right? You start to get a little irritable. irritable. And we like to call that around our house, are you being hangry, right? Um, you get a little upset like that. As if you have to become angry when you're not eating. But that's what's happening in Israel's world. Skipping a few meals, they're getting hangry, they're coming irritable, and they're starting to get hateful for one another. It's all going very well right now for Israel. This this inner disposition that is cultivated by their attempt to get close to God is actually making them outwardly fractious, full of disharmony, and hateful, and forgetting everybody except themselves. And Isaiah is saying, this kind of religion got to go. Take your religious devotion somewhere else. It's not helping. Leslie Newbegin is a name that I've referenced before. He was a missionary in India for 30 years. And he comes back to the West after that time in India and realizes that the West is as much in need of a reintroduction and a recovery of the gospel as anybody he told about Jesus for the first time in Calcutta. And there's a story I read of him last week. Who He, he went to the Civil Rights Museum down in Birmingham, and he, and he, and he surveys the which, ways in which racism was so rampant for so long and still holds its tentacles in modern society. And he comes out to the parking lot and has sort of this moment of philosophical sobriety, and he's just lamenting not only the way racism persisted for song, but the degree to which so many within the church were complicit in racism's perpetuation. And then he asked himself this question. I wonder what later generations will identify as our biggest idol to which we are oblivious. No doubt it will be our economic idolatry and our blindness to consumerism. It will be our lives immersed in mindless consumption in a world where there is so much poverty and hunger. You and I are not born to be consumers. We have to be bred to be consumers, and by consumers I mean this. You have to become convinced. It has to become second nature and almost without thought. It has to be a conscious thought where everything that you want suddenly in your mind becomes something that you need. Or everything that's new suddenly becomes for you necessary. And when you buy that, when I buy that sentiment, then this is what happens to me. Bruce Waltke is a theologian who said, you know you're a consumer when you refuse to be disadvantaged for the advantage of the disadvantaged. Say it again. You know you're a consumer when you refuse to be disadvantaged for the advantage of the disadvantaged. If that's, like, far from you, then you know you've bought hook, line, and sinker. Now, look, the family in the grocery cart, do you think I know what it will take to help them? I don't. And I don't think you do either. The best I could do is something really simple and piecemeal with empathy because I know that poverty and injustice is a layered, complicated problem. But Isaiah is saying it's not the complexity that's the biggest issue. The way into that world is not the problem so much as the will. And the more we're bred to be consumers the less likely we're interested in being disadvantaged for the advantage of the disadvantaged. If I can put where Isaiah and Newbegin is, kind of like the, the cookie jars on the bottom shelf, I, I didn't know who Zadie Smith was until li- a week ago. Raise your hand. Have you ever heard Zadie Smith? Anybody heard of you, Zadie Smith? Patty Lynch did in the first service. Aren't we all shocked? <laughs> Zadie Smith is an author in her 40s. Uh, she wrote an article last week saying, if you're under the age of 30 and you can think for yourself, you should thank God for that. Because so much of us, including those under the age of 30, get so much information from social media, and that means all of your ability to think comes from what she calls the algorithm. You get what Facebook wants you to get, and then you base all your thoughts on that, and she goes, if you can think for yourself, thank God for that. But what she says at the end of the article Was really compelling to me. She said this I think the hardest thing for anyone is accepting that other people are as real as you are. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as examples or things to make yourself feel better or things to get over or under, just accepting that they are absolutely as real as you are and have all the same expectations and demands. I think that's what Isaiah was saying what's at the bottom of Isaiah's problem is that they don't see others as real as they are, especially the vulnerable. And I'm susceptible to that too, and so are you. And it's that kind of religious devotion that Isaiah is saying, that's got to go. But that's not all Isaiah says. Because yes, if somebody says religious devotion is part of the problem when it comes to the vulnerable, Isaiah would nod his head at that. But he would also say, But there is a form of religious devotion that is actually the solution. That whereas it can be something that stifles the concern for justice and mercy, it can as much, if not more so, be what compels and sustains the desire to act with justice and with mercy. It is not an enemy of compassion, it's actually a catalyst for it. And therefore, he says, there is religious devotion that can actually be a catalyst for justice. And you hear him say that in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Israel's back in its land. It's been returned from exile. It's found its way back home. And yet... Apparently, in that day, there were too many who were being unjustly punished, who were somehow caught in social and cultural patterns in which they were kind of oppressed in some way. And again, we, we don't know the backstory. We just we know that Isaiah is calling it like he's seen it, and he's seen it, and he's seen it, and he's realizing not only are they caught in that, but there is no way, and there's nobody there attending to that need, nobody advocating for their concern. And he says, "But there is a way to fast." That's not an enemy of that. That will not perpetuate those patterns. There is a way of religious devotion that will actually help you reckon with those realities. And maybe even have the courage to enter into that condition. Because it's in this kind of fasting, he says, this kind of spirituality, that you begin to see notions and habits and patterns that keep people in bondage. I mentioned a few months ago about the, the talk that Brian Stevenson gave at UNCA a few months ago. He's the guy that uh, works in Montgomery, Alabama. He's all about working about criminal justice reform. He wrote a book called Just Mercy. He travels the country talking about ways in which criminal justice, re- justice reform can happen. And one of the main planks of that effort is to say the narrative's got to change. That so much of the system is predicated on certain ideas that are patently false that leads into a thoughtless, angular, draconian way of applying justice, not in surgical ways, but like a cudgel. And he says, until the narrative changes, the system won't change. What Brian Stevenson does in speeches all over the country is what Isaiah says what fasting can do. He's forcing you to reckon with realities, and he's doing it by speaking. Isaiah's saying, if you will allow your spiritual time to consider those things. It will be as potent as some man speaking to you in a crowded auditorium. What Isaiah is saying is that this kind of fasting can be a catalyst for justice, and not only for justice, it can be a catalyst for mercy. It's what you hear in verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That somehow the fruit of this fasting allows you to see the need for for feeding, for housing, for clothing. And then this this all-encompassing idea of not hiding your flesh, not hiding yourself from your own flesh. That's just an ancient way of saying being present. pushing back against our own instinctual inclination to avoid looking at, avoid seeing it, avoid considering it, avoid reckoning it, but instead being present to it. It is actually saying to yourself, I'm going to believe that others are as real as I am. And that comes as an outworking of that effort, of an outworking of that religious devotion. Now, I'm going to show you a clip that has nothing to do with poverty. It has nothing to do with injustice, but it shows somebody in a very real place of disadvantage. And here is how a little community comes together to speak and address that disadvantage. It's ironically from a Samsung commercial. You probably saw it. It didn't keep the G7 from catching on fire. But here's what happens when a community comes together to answer someone with a disadvantage. Disadvantage. He can't hear. He can only speak with people that know his language. And so everybody learned his language. And that's what justice and mercy are is kind of removing those barriers that they might become part of this community to be fully involved. And 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 Isaiah is saying to Israel and to us all there is a form of religious devotion in which you're reckoning with, with something you believe something you believe about Muharim. Something you believe about your place in this world. That's a theological question. It's, look, Samsung sold sets that way. Look, there was a commercial, there was a a bottom line there too, even though there was something really sweet in the compassion. But in that midst of a disadvantage, the people take time and energy and strategy in order to meet to that need. And Isaiah is saying there is a form of devotion that compels that, but why? There's the last question, and that's where we're going to land this plane. Why? Why would it compel that kind of concern? Because Every single promise you're going to hear from any political candidate for the next 12 months has an underlying theological basis for it, even if they won't admit it. There are certain beliefs that undergird their policies that they can't prove, that they'll just assert. That's a religious belief. You and I have all got them. And whether a devotion to the vulnerable is going to be real depends on the motivation beneath it. Because there are all sorts of things that might motivate concern for justice and mercy. Some might simply say, I want to make the world a better place. They have this moral feeling. They like it when they can help, and that'll make the world a better place. And they, just, they do it that way, and that's, that's cool. And then there are others who get you know a little bit more philosophical. They have this more um, um, thought-out humanistic strain in them that because... People have an intrinsic goodness and potential, then we, for some reason, feel an obligation to attend to them if they're in a vulnerable situation. All of, there's all sorts of motivations behind that kind of justice and mercy. Isaiah has got one for us here. The motivation that Isaiah unpacks is this. Do you want a new nation? Do you want a new world? Then make it a new world for those who've hit a brick wall. And your world will be different. And so you hear that in verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily, your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rearguard. He's saying, You want to make a new world? You want to find guidance and, and clarity and compassion and conviction? then go out and make it possible for those who are suffering unjustly or who are in need of mercy. And, and you want to know, you want to walk with greater confidence that God is near, where he's kind of like, he's, his righteousness goes before you and his glory is behind you, kind of like you're, like you're hemmed in and he's got you. It's like the, the flying wedge. Attend to those who are the most vulnerable. And he even goes on to say, the way you perceive me, the Lord, Will change. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and He'll say, Here I am. He's saying, Whatever sense that you might have had that God was absent or forgotten you or, you know, doing other things, busy elsewhere, no. This world changes for you like this, it will be like I'm near again. There's a motivation. Now, if you're listening, you might think, Wait a minute, that sounds like quid pro quo. But from God's point of view, uh, you do this for them and then I'll do this for you. It's a bargain, is it? Is it? So so the compassion, the the concern for justice and mercy is all kind of to give ourselves a gift because it'll be good for us. That's why we should do it for them. Shh, no. What is the motivation that Isaiah is talking about? He's saying this. When you begin to have that kind of concern for those who are vulnerable, it's not so that you can get God's healing. It's because you already believe that you've received it. Because when you have turned your view away from this fixation on your own self, unto those who find themselves in those places of vulnerability, what's already happened is you've... No, you're, here, let me put this way. Poverty and injustice is layered and complicated, and I don't, have a, I don't have a single fix for it, and nobody that's running for office either does either. It's always going to be layered. But I do know one thing about that problem is that that misery is perpetuated when everybody thinks about only their own selves. And therefore, when you turn away from all the things that led you to be irritable towards your brothers and um, ill-concerned for anybody else, the healing has already started to work its work. And now the things that were perpetuating those who were vulnerable in their misery, their misery is actually your misery too. Because all the things that keep you from helping others are the very things that are actually contributing to your own problem. Friends, you can become all the richer and still be lonely. Lonely. You can make your world as safe as anybody on the planet and still be more insecure. You can be healthier than anyone on your block and still be rife with hatred and polarization. When the shift happens towards the vulnerable, not only are they helped, but you're already demonstrating the healing that is working in you because of this one thing. Isaiah is saying, when you act in that way, you're coming to reflect who God has already been for you. Who showed justice and mercy first? God or Israel? It would be God. It was God who acted for the sake of Israel's justice in them under the boot of oppression. It was God who worked on behalf of Israel to show them mercy, even when they whined in the wilderness. God is the one who had demonstrated mercy and justice to Israel. And when Israel starts to do that, they're just reflecting what God has been for them already. That's the motivation. Who God has been for them, that's who they mirror in themselves. And now that may all sound really subtle. And in some ways, it's kind of the implicit motivation. But what was implicitly put through Isaiah was explicitly demonstrated in the one who would succeed Isaiah and be the greater story beyond Isaiah, and that would be Jesus. Jesus demonstrated, spoke, and acted with justice and mercy at all times in every way, first of all in his life. When the wee little man Zacchaeus is up in the branch and he takes him, says, I'm coming to your house for dinner, that was not just a great story so the kids could listen with flannel graft. Jesus was acting in Zacchaeus' life that he might act with justice again. He had defrauded people, and he chose to act with justice and generosity. When Jesus sat with pariahs and those who were ostracized and those who were tax collectors and sinners, everybody that had treated those folks with condemnation, Jesus comes to them with mercy and kindness and loving. He is acting with justice and mercy in his life. But he's acting with justice and mercy at the same time and in real time at his cross. Because in that moment, on that cross, when he made himself the most vulnerable, he was there to satisfy the justice that sin deserved. But at the very same time, he was also extending mercy to those upon whom that justice ought to have fallen. And he entered into our vulnerability to speak to our greatest vulnerability so that he might act with justice and mercy on our behalf for the sake of the whole world. That's justice. That's mercy. When you get that, everything changes. That's your motivation. Look, you want to make the world a better place? Great. But not to be cynical. But for every one good thing you do for another with a way of justice and mercy, I'm sorry. There are 10,000 other examples of it being the exact opposite demonstration. If you think you're only going to do it so that the world becomes a better place, boy, are you up for an uphill climb. And if you believe that you ought to be motivated by this sort of overarching humanism where because of their intrinsic goodness or because of their potential, what about those who waste their potential? What about those who don't demonstrate any goodness but only badness? Are you going to be selective about the demonstration of justice and mercy? Jesus wasn't. Those other motivations can motivate. It's only this one that will sustain it. And so I give you one last time Zadie Smith's words. Remember what she said. I think the hardest thing for anyone is accepting that other people are as real as you are. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as examples or things to make yourself feel better or things to get over or under, just accepting that they are absolutely as real as you are and have all the same expectations and demands. But then she ends the whole article with these two sentences. And it's so difficult that basically the only person that ever did it was Christ. The rest of us are very, very far behind. She understands. Here is one who came and entered into vulnerability and acted with justice and mercy and nobody else can hold a candle to him. But she nor I are looking at you nor Isaiah is looking at you with shame saying shame on you. You need to get God's favor by acting with God's mercy. That's not what he's saying. That's not what she's saying. That's not what I'm saying. It is simply to believe that you are already the recipient of justice and mercy. And that's why towards the end of Tim Keller's book on generous justice, he says this. There is a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice and the poor. Before you can give this neighbor love, you need to receive it. Only if you see that you've been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite. Will you go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need Once we receive this ultimate radical neighbor love through Jesus, we can start to be the neighbors that the Bible calls us to be. This is not about you going out and trying to find God's favor by being kind to those who are vulnerable. This is about you and I believing that we've been the recipients of his kindness and his justice and his mercy. And then being freed to forget ourselves. And that's why we're coming to this table. Because I forget And because I can't stop thinking about myself. And therefore why I need to remember that what I think I need, he's already done for me. I don't know who David Fitch is, but I read this tweet last week and I thought, this works. He said this. One early Sunday morning several years ago, I called my five-year-old son off the hockey rink in the middle of practice to go to church gathering. He complained. I said, get in the car, son. Hockey means nothing without the Eucharist. Hockey is just hockey without this table. And on your deathbed, hockey won't matter. But this will. This will be your word of consolation. This will be your word of encouragement. This will be the word to remind you of faith. And it is from this table where you recognize the way in which he made himself vulnerable and to act with justice and mercy that might just be the linchpin to whether or not you and I will ever do the same. Not to earn his love but to be thankful for it. How does this split out in practice? I don't know. It's not a matter of when or if the opportunity for showing justice and mercy will come to you. It's just a matter of when. Hearing this may change the way you think about how you do Christmas this year. It may invite you to go to our website under the ministries page and under mercy, click on the button that says give help And tell us what your skills and aptitudes are so that the deaconate of our church can put you in a database and call upon you when we might need you to fit and meet a need that solely needs your giftings. I don't know. I would like you to pray for the Land Rover dealership across the street. It's for sale. we got to make our own budget. But wouldn't it be cool if that place became something for the sake of mercy and justice in our world? I don't know. Pray. If you make art, tell stories of justice and mercy. If you're involved in influence in government, my gosh, here's an opportunity to act with justice and mercy. Whatever the case may be, I know this. He has acted with us with great compassion. Not so that we might return the favor or compensate him for it, but simply to give thanks. Let's pray. Father, I am going to be tempted to be satisfied with only having spoken of it today. I will be tempted to think that's all that needed to be done. And I know full well that your church is mainly involved in the work of heralding your kindness and your goodness and your grace to us and to speak well of it and to demonstrate it in word and in deed. And that is its main and most important work, but we know it's not its only work. So we ask that you might show us how might we uniquely take up the work of justice and mercy through ourselves as a community. Help us to see and act with clarity. Help us to act with love. In Jesus' name, amen.